I had to decide right now, I would probably say that I would be getting another booster in the same time I get my flu shot next year. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Bill, Fred, uh, thanks again for joining us. Um, be great to give everyone a quick update over uh, about what has occurred over the last two weeks and some specific questions from our audience. Well, I was hoping that we'd say by now that, yep, things are looking really good and every all the case numbers are down, but unfortunately that's not the case. Um, nationally, we're still down, um, now only 3% down week over week from last week. Um, but a couple of major locations, New York, New Jersey area, District of Columbia, um, they're seeing case rates up. Those were amongst the areas that had the early Omicron run-up. So what's going on here, we're not real clear. And on top of that, we have the issue in the United Kingdom where case rates have been up steadily now for three weeks, all felt to be due to Omicron um, and the fact that they've reopened everything. The last couple of days for the first time in that three weeks looks like they're starting to see a downturn and the uh, public health authorities in the United Kingdom are still feeling very confident that they have the bulk of COVID behind them. So they, they are not in any way proposing a um, reinstitution of controls. And then just this morning, the um, health commissioner in New York, he had a press conference based on the 30% increase in cases that have been seen in New York City um, in the past week. And he said that the internal data that they are seeing implies that there is not going to be a any significant impact from this and this run-up will likely be short-lived. So it's a little bit of a, a pause in my in my general optimism. Um, I still don't think that this is going to be bad in the long run. But what I tell most of the companies I work with at this point is this is not the time to to continue to reduce your control measures. I would not reinstitute control measures, but just take a pause right now and let's see what happens over the next couple of weeks. Bill, I, I agree with you. The, it's not a digital response. In other words, uh, you don't say, oh, the infection's over. We don't. We can go back to normal instantly. It's a very gradual tapering down. And if you uh, free up and eliminate all infection control practices, you will see a new surge because there are still a significant percentage of individuals who are not immune and who are susceptible to the Omicron variant. And then the other issue that uh, we need to talk a little bit about is the BA2 variant, Omicron variant. Uh, and that particular variant is 30% more infectious than the BA1 variant. The good news is so far, BA1 and BA2 seem to be similar as far as disease severity. The second good news is that if you were infected with BA1, you are protected from BA2. So, uh, but in, in parts of Europe now, uh, particularly I think it's uh, Norway and Denmark, they're seeing a surge of BA2 and in some areas, BA2 is steadily taking over. And I believe in the United States, we're beginning to see an increased percentage of infections due to BA2 rather than BA1, 
which makes sense because if it's more contagious, over time, it will become the dominant strain. All right, just to reduce this a little bit, Fred and, and Bill, to what consequence is, um, and how should people be thinking about this data from the UK, Europe, uh, what does it mean to have measures in place? Because quite frankly, the political scene here in the U.S., and certainly I'm here in New York, um, it, it is really uh, life back to normal, uh, both in terms of uh, mask wearing, checking vaccination cards, etc. What exactly should people be worried about with BA2 that they're not already thinking about with respect to Omicron or, or the original uh, coronavirus? David, nothing really. I really think the CDC, for the first time in this, hit a home run with their, their new community guidance map that de-emphasized the, the rates. It emphasized instead what, is the, uh, what are the outcomes, and the outcomes being hospitalizations and, and impact on hospital beds, availability of hospital beds. And so what we've seen over the past you know, the, this is now the fourth iteration of the CDC map that came out last Friday. And what we've seen over these four iterations is just a steady greening of the country. You know, as you may remember, when this started originally at the end of February, the map was, it was really, it was kind of a little bit of green, a lot of yellow, the middle ground where you didn't have to wear a mask unless you were at risk. Um, and then a, a whole lot of red. Now, the map is almost entirely green. The only real redness is in Appalachia um, and the very northern part of Maine. But other than that, the country is almost entirely green. Um, and that's, even though we're seeing case rates that are, may not be going down as much as they were, we're also not seeing the impacts of cases uh, that are causing hospitalizations or deaths or having huge impacts on the system. And that's, I think, the message that people need to be taking home, is don't just look at number of cases. What does it matter? What is the impact of it? And I don't mean it doesn't matter. I truly mean that what does it matter? The number of hospitalizations and the impact on the hospital systems is what makes the difference there. I agree with Bill. This new system is really superior. Uh, and I think everybody should follow us. There is a little glitch in the system. I can speak because Alachua County has two major referral hospitals. And every case, I talked to our uh, Department of Health, every case that's hospitalized for COVID-19 in our system is attributed to Alachua County, even though a number of the cases are coming from other counties. So we've actually stayed in the red zone uh, for a long time, despite the fact that the percentage positivity within the county of Alachua is very low. And so it can falsely overestimate in centers where there's a referral of a lot of COVID-19 patients. But I don't think that's in general a problem. And I would, in our own hospital, it turns out that uh, right now in our hospital service, we had 80 to 90 uh, patients with COVID at the peak. We're down at 9 to 10 now. So it's really a dramatic reduction in hospitalizations. So we are getting better. And the other thing that's impacting those statistics is that people are going back to hospitals to get things done, that the elective things done that they put off 
but so many of them, especially during the the height of Omicron, were coming in well, but positive for COVID, and then they were counted as COVID hospitalizations. So that's that's still happening, but not to the degree that it was. Yeah, that that's a very important point, bro. And actually, we're doing a study of Omicron patients, and we've looked at 385 cases, and it turns out 45 percent of those who were admitted were admitted for another reason and found to have COVID-19. And that's very different than the Delta or the other variants, uh, where predominantly hospitalizations were due to COVID-19 and not because of uh, admission for some other health problem. David, won't go down too far on what's going to be interesting to look back in retrospect, but that is that leads into one other thing that retrospectively is going to be interesting. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to hit a million quote, a million COVID deaths in this country. In reality, we're going to hit a million people who died with COVID. Now, whether they were COVID deaths or had something else is going to re- remains to be seen. But those kinds of analyses are going to be are going to be interesting, most of which are only going to be able to be done in retrospect. And let me let me just say this is part of what's fueling the fire. And I've heard this uh, from clients in terms of the statistics. Let me uh, get to the pragmatic, which is uh, if you, if you are a company, if you are a government agency, and you are situated in one of the green zones, and the bulk of your population is coming from a green zone, what specific procedures or protocols, as we're taking a, uh, you know, an appropriately cautious approach to the environment, what are you guys suggesting um, for companies, government agencies to implement uh, to maintain the safety of the workplace. Well, in the, the organizations that I've been talking with, the general, and it's been different for different organizations because we talk through risk tolerance with each one. But generally what I've been telling people is that as you get into the green zone, um, most of these organizations, remember, did require, end up requiring vaccination at some point or masking. Um, and I'm saying that as you get down to the green zone, you've got a mostly vaccinated workforce, um, you're probably okay removing masks. But then as you get down into near negligible levels, which is our case levels that are down in the, the low single digits, at that point, you're probably okay to start letting people who have not been vaccinated back into the workplace. Um, but the other thing I keep making the point of is base it all on a pick a, a system you're going to use when when statistics get down to a certain level or the, the codes, the green, red, yellow, go down to change levels. That's when you make your change. That way, if it goes back up again for any reason, as a couple of locations saw over the past couple of weeks, you already have your built-in triggers that bring it that bring masks back in or, or what have you. And that's worked out pretty well. But that's the, in the general guidance. So I've, most of the organizations that I work with in most of the country are back to pretty normal operations. Okay, but they are relying on the fact that their workforce has been vaccinated and appropriately yeah. boosted. That's what I'm hearing you say. Um, vaccinated, not necessarily appropriately boosted because the, the booster does make a difference on incidents, but it's not making as huge a difference on severe disease. And uh, uh, Fred, if you want to comment on that, I think that might be useful. But I, everything I'm seeing is that the booster is really making the big difference on whether you get infected at, at any level or not. But as long as you've you've had both shots and better if you've been vaccinated, if you've been boosted, 
your risk of severe disease is still very low. Uh, those uh, recommendations are exactly what I'm uh, proposing. However, if someone is older, immunocompromised, we are encouraging them to wear masks. And we're encouraging those that are not wearing masks to be tolerant of individuals wearing masks because of a, of a risk or a fear. And that way, I think, with particularly with the N95 mask, those individuals can protect themselves without necessarily everyone having to wear a mask. So when we got into the yellow and the green zone, uh, masks are no longer required in the workplace. The other issue is, uh, can you gather and, and uh, have normal gatherings? I've been a little more hesitant about that because the more people you gather together, the higher the probability there'll be one individual, even in a lower uh, level activity that might be might be infected in that room and could spread it to everyone. So we've kept at about 50% capacity for now. That's about the only change. The other big and I think very important thing that a lot of companies should be focusing on is the ventilation in their buildings. Uh, it's really important to get the turnover rate, the volume turnover in those rooms up to about at least five to six per hour. And that will really also reduce the risk. Even if there's one person, if there's good ventilation, there won't be aerosol buildup and it's much less likely. The other thing that as far as spaces, uh, it's becoming clear from some of the studies that I'm aware of that higher ceilings are much better. They're much safer because the cloud tends to rise and is up and if you've got a low ceiling, uh, you're more likely to breathe it in, but in a high ceiling building, you're less likely to become infected. So let me summarize uh, for people who have to make these decisions. Uh, watch the data and the statistics. So far, things look good, but no one should be complacent. Uh, we're, you're still recommending that the workforce be vaccinated, uh, if not boosted. Common sense, um, in the current environment, Fred, I'm hearing you say, limit, you know, the tight gatherings and the 50% rule sounds like a reasonable uh, measure. Uh, the notion of air circulation in, in offices and factory plants and uh, mindful that sort of spaces that have high ceilings may be more, um, more safe than uh, low and confined uh, s spatial areas where people might work. And I love the, uh, the point you introduced, Fred, was tolerant of people who do choose to wear a mask because they may be immunocompromised, it may be an age thing, they may have you know, some issues where they want to be very, very cautious at home. Is that a reasonable summary of where you guys are? Yes, that's perfect. I yep. I, I agree completely. And the other important point with that is there is going to be a flu season ne next year in all likelihood. And all of those things that you just went through are going to, is going to help keep us from having an epidemic flu season. Let's put that under the category of common sense. Uh, but as my grandparents used to tell me, uh, if common sense were so common, it would not be so highly valued. Let me uh, switch to two uh, other topics uh, one, data has come out that seemed to reinforce the importance 
of vaccinations for uh, women who either are pregnant or are thinking about becoming pregnant uh, because of the impact that the virus can have on unvaccinated women. Can you guys give us some insights about some of the recent studies that have been released? The, the most recent one I'm aware of um, was about a month ago that looked at when is the optimal time for women to be vaccinated and who are pregnant. And clearly in the third trimester, mid-third trimester is excellent because then the, the baby is born with a healthy complement of antibodies from the mom. The baby doesn't get vaccinated, so the baby is not going to be making new new antibodies, but the baby is going to be born essentially vaccinated. And then the next level after that is if the mom is immunized, and again, being late or being mid-third trimester is a good time to do it, and then breastfeeding. She will pass on, she will continue to pass antibodies onto the baby. So the baby will continue to be passively immunized. And um, I, having delivered and then taken care of a whole bunch of babies in my life, I'm always terrified those first three months of a baby's life because if a baby gets a fever, just a routine viral fever during those first three months, they get the full court press workup, which is, it's rather traumatizing to, to not just the baby and the and parents, but even the medical staff to have to do all those things to a little one. So if we can do, do those kinds of things to protect these, especially youngest infants from getting COVID just, and just get, even though they may not get very ill, just running the risk of a fever where they have to get all those things done to them. That to me is a big win. I, I agree with Bill, as always. And uh, the reason that pregnant women are such a, a dangerous and susceptible population is that uh, being pregnant is a form of being immunocompromised. Your immune system actually damps down so you don't reject the foreign antigens of the child. And as a consequence, this is true of influenza as well, uh, they get more severe of our, uh, COVID-19 than the average person. So they can be considered at this point immunocompromised. And it's interesting when you, they looked at originally at a ward, uh, a maternity ward in New York City, I think it was at Columbia, they found that a high percent, almost none of the women had any fevers and yet a significant percent were positive for RT-PCR. So they don't, will not manifest the disease in quite the same way. And then if they get the respiratory uh, component of the disease, which was certainly very prominent with Delta variant and the Alpha variant, uh, their diaphragm is very, very high because of the fetus and it, it, it compromises their respiratory ability to ventilate and so that they uh, become much more epoxic much earlier in the course of the disease and are more likely also to miscarriage. Uh, as a consequence of the virus. So it makes sense for the fetus and for the mother to become vaccinated. Let me uh, switch to um, some news from the last week uh, with the heads of Pfizer and Moderna uh, making announcements about their views about a second booster. And I recognize that uh, there has not been a regulatory ruling on this, but there certainly are a lot of questions, both in terms of uh, the need for one and um, 
So, so what, what is prompting um, the heads of these companies to come out and actually be public about um, their views of what they're seeing in the data and the, the need for a second uh, booster? The issue is the following. Uh, we know that after each vaccine shot, the IgG antibodies, uh, the titer of antibody, goes slowly down over, uh, it starts really significantly dropping at about six weeks. And by about uh, five to six months, the levels are, are quite low. And when you look at neutralizing antibody, that is, you, you take the serum and dilute it out to see at what titer it kills, still kills the virus. Uh, that also, the dilution instead of one to thousand, one to fifteen hundred, is down at one to thirty. And uh, there seems to be a correlation between uh, when it's down at one to thirty of uh, increased susceptibility to infection. Now the the problem with that is that it doesn't take into account cell-mated immunity, and cell-mated immunity is probably the major way that the virus is protected. And they have not really studied uh, what's happening with cell-mediated immunity. I think for individuals under the age of 65, I think that cell-mediated immunity will be more than sufficient, even if the IgG levels, the neutralizing antibody levels, drop down to 1 to 35 or 1 to 50. However, those over age 65, cell-mediated immunity does become somewhat deficient. And I think in that group, it makes sense to consider a fourth vaccine to further stimulate cell-mediated immunity and raise the IgG levels. I'm thinking that maybe we're going to be needing a fourth one at a more general level of the population come, come cold and flu season next year just to keep the overall rate of uh, infected people in society down. But I'm not, that's still too far off. I mean, that's six months almost before we need to make that decision. Um, but everything else, I agree completely with Fred. All right. Just in conclusion, what, what should we be looking for in the coming weeks? Uh, warm weather, people coming out. And what do you think will ultimately um, determine a recommendation by the FDA or CDC around a second booster or fourth vaccine, as Fred says? I, don't, I think it's, it's hard to predict right now. Um, if there's a new variant, uh, one of the things we found, remember the vaccine was not directed against the Omicron. And that's one of the reasons why you needed a higher titer to get protection because there weren't as many epitopes or sites that the vaccine was... Uh, generating antibodies and cell-mediated immunity against. And so you had to have higher levels to get protection. If there's another variant that's uh, very extremely different, uh, then I think one of the things I would recommend, and I think they're, that's what the companies consider, they should have a mix of the Omicron variant mRNA in their vaccine so that you get higher levels of protection for the Omicron and the BA1 and the BA2. Uh, so th that was what I would recommend. 
Fred, earlier on, there have been discussions of people of the possibility of being over immunized, that if we get if people get immunized too many times, the immune system may not be react as well. Is there anything to that? That's that's beyond my my knowledge. Um, That would be considered tolerance. I have not seen uh, you know, I'm not an expert uh, in vaccines as such, but I have not. I, I keep scanning the literature. I have found no evidence for tolerance. Uh, so I, I, I do not think it will harm you. It may not help very much, but I doubt if it's going to be harmful. And I doubt if it will reduce your ability to fight the, the virus. I think that's highly unlikely. Personally, I'm, I'm leaning towards, I'm, if, if, I had to, if I had to decide right now, I would probably say that I would get be getting another booster in the same time I get my flu shot next year, but as our next next fall. But as I said, we still have time to get more data between now and then. But that's the direction I'd be leading. So that was the question I was going to ask, as opposed to uh, questions that usually are asked of the experts. What would you do? And Fred, I'm not going to reveal your age or Bill yours, but I have Bill's uh, answer. Fred, what are you thinking about doing for yourself and your family? Well, I'm a little bit older than Bill, and also I actually am working in the hospital quite a bit. I work in the emergency room, I'm working on the wards, so I am getting more likely to be exposed. Uh, Therefore, I will uh, get a fourth booster uh, if that's approved uh, earlier rather than later. But I think for the general population, I I like uh, Bill's idea of getting at the time of the influenza vaccine. The only problem with that, Bill, is if you get a reaction to the flu vaccine, they'll blame it on the on the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. So that's the only trouble with getting two vaccines at the same time. You don't know which one to blame if you get a reaction. True. I actually I got my my first booster and my flu vaccine this last September the same day, um, and I didn't have much of a reaction either way. But that was a thought. Well, Bill and Fred, I want to thank you both. Uh, Obviously, if something new comes up, we'll have an ad hoc session. Uh, And in the meantime, uh, let's also uh, hope that things uh, settle and uh, maybe peace can be found uh, in Europe. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.